0: welcome back to the tft podcast i'm matt that is not ryan it is mark lee hi mark lee
1: Hey, is this the podcast where we get to curse and, and spoil things, and also talk about um, music and what things are real and not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, would you like to curse? Uh, yeah. Would you like to like be indoctrinated by cursing, uh, giving a spoiler for a beloved uh, pop culture property, and sure. <laughs> telling me whether you're for real or not?
1: In the movie Almost Fucking Famous, um, <laughs> someone almost dies a Quaaludes, almost dies a Quaalude, but doesn't, and her name is actually lady something and i forgot <laughs> also led f- led fucking zeppelin led <laughs> Zeppelin.
0: <laughs> um, Mark Lee uh, is here with us because uh, uh, of two reasons. One is his own manifest credentials. Uh, Mark is a musician who rocks hard and is our our sort of resident uh, expert in rocking hard. Uh, you can see Mark's original music videos on overthinking it with um, parody songs and also songs that he's composed himself, uh, which are many of them love ballads to the Terminator. Franchise,
1: well, only one, but that's sure it, it constitutes. It is a multitude of songs. In a
0: in a way, aren't they all love ballads to the Terminator franchise? They, yes, they are in a way. Love in a ballads. way, <laughs> um, and also uh, Ryan cannot join us this week, but uh, we actually planned this. We planned this out in advance because a couple weeks ago we talked about the Beatles and we talked about the move from with, with the Beatles or meet the Beatles to hard days night. Uh, last week we talked about pet sounds and the beach boys and, and the, the sort of transition into the sixties and the gateway to, Psychedelic rock and and um, the gateway to, uh, also, I think, the gateway to sort of what I've heard called the John Vandersliceization of indie pop, where there is th- these um, precious sonic tapestries uh, that are, you know, artisanally crafted one sitar note at a time. Uh, and now, you know, we move into the 70s, and we're going to do that with a look at the film Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe's movie. Uh, that is a semi-autographical story about his time uh, on the road with bands when he was, in fact, a writer from Rolling Stone when he was a teenager. Um, This also, you know, my desire to do this and and trying to put this together also coincides with the the passing of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, Mr. Hoffman gives, I think, a really great performance Um, in this, and there's, there's actually some stuff in the, uh, in the Wikipedia article on the movie, some, uh, uh, a quotation from Cameron Crowe about, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's work in the movie, which is, which is interesting and which maybe we can talk about a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but. Mark, I, I want to sort of start off with you, and I want to um, put a question to you that we've been putting to one another on this podcast, uh, at least in the current season, um, as our research que- <coughs> excuse me, question has uh, shifted uh, from, um, is our teenagers fucking, to, are these guys for real? And, as our research agenda has uh, shifted or our research methodology rather has shifted from a um, uh, a look at whatever happens to be hot currently in the world of indie pop uh, or pop to um, uh, to a kind of historical overview uh, of pop rock 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 uh, psychedelic rock into post rock. Um so Mark what what I'd like to know about yeah. Almost mm-hmm. Famous is um is this movie for real? <laughs>
1: is this movie for you know i thought the question you were gonna ask is are these guys for real Well, are these guys, these guys referring to the band uh Stillwater or the uh the real life bands that they that they uh represent well, so that's, i don't know where that's should i the start
0: question what do you wh- i mean yeah there are a lot of guys right to say that are these guys for real right is this filmmaker for real are these actors for real uh are these musicians for real right um is uh and and uh, and so, what do you think? I guess as a precursor to that, who do you hear? Because you are far more expert in the music of this period than I am, um, because you have any expertise at all. And you, uh, so you, you might have to tell us who do they sound like? Who do Stillwater sound like to you?
1: Well, they sound the most to me like Led Zeppelin. Um, for two reasons, I mean, they intentionally throughout the movie they are constantly referring them, comparing themselves to Led Zeppelin explicitly, right? But musically as well, you have the high pitched, a um, high tenor lead singer who is uh, analogous to Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, and then you have the mysterious virtuosic lead guitarist, right? Uh, that to me is pretty clear. I, I, I what the difference is that this Stillwater isn't explicitly an American band. Um, uh, and and Led Zeppelin is obviously a British band, and so with the American, sentim- uh, American um, sentiment and with, with 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 that feeling, you also get mixtures of I don't know the Almond Brothers, Brothers band. You also get a, a, a certain Leonard Skinner thing going on, although their sound is not necessarily Southern rock. Um, their near death in a plane crash, I think, is a pretty clear reference to the Southern rock band Leonard Skinner, who actually were in a plane crash, which killed most of the members of the band. Um, so that's that's the uh, those are the bands that I think that are, are tied right. up and in and
0: so Cameron Crowe I think reported on Skinner for for Rolling Stone and there you go that so, makes a lot of sense yeah it's one of the I mean it's inspired by that uh, if it's not a sort of uh, if it's not exactly you know uh, moment for moment a uh, recreation
1: God, he wasn't on that plane was he
0: no I don't think I don't think so well yeah. I I don't know actually let's uh, le- let me ask Wikipedia
1: I th- I feel like I would have heard about that. Um, were that the case, uh, I have uh, another interesting biographical note myself. And aside from um, my uh, musical experiences, that I also grew up in the state of Alabama, and Leonard Skinnerd is like baked in my DNA. Even though most of my all of my DNA came from South Korea, but it's a long story. Uh, <laughs> ask me about it in the comments if you want to know. Um, okay, so it, it, is this movie for real? <laughs> <laughs> that well, we'll
0: wrap here. Yeah. Or, as, I mean, do you think do you think this band is do you think this band is is for real it, taking the hypothetical band as if it were as if it were a real band and sort of subjecting it to the question that, that we've we've been asking? I mean, do you think that do you think this band is for real?
1: Let's approach this from a few different ways. Um, and uh, let's start with like the uh, the sort of question of musical authenticity that word that you've been using a lot on the TFT podcast as right. of late. Um, and uh, let's approach this from a few different ways. Um, from the perspective of, like, auteurship and, like, crafting songs from a place that is uh, more or less untainted by inauth- inauthenticity of, like, uh, you know, a sort of a, a formulaic approach to churning out pop music, um, as they're depicted in this music, sure, Stillwater is absolutely for real right? Like, you know, they don't have professional songwriters. It's like, presumably, the guys who are in various uh, forms of chemical uh, influence, you know, sitting around in the studio or in their garage or in the hotel room, writing songs, right, that uh, come from their own um, vocabulary of music, right? And um, on one level, sure, that is a type of authenticity. Would you say? I mean, the yeah. compare. You know, like uh, the, most, the the TFD podcast I listen to most recently was one about Britney Spears, right? And you know, the the question, the answer to it is, is she for real? It's like, well, mostly no, right? For a whole host of reasons, but including the fact that, like, you know, she is, uh, she's not the auteur in the same way that uh, we see uh, a lot of these other musicians that we're talking about, right?
0: Yeah, uh I think that's I mean I think that's right and I think you're right about what the uh I think you're right about what the film is saying about these musicians. I mean, I think the film is nostalgic about this period in in uh music music history and uh, which we sort of understand as being sort of the classic rock era, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the, the pre what? Pre-metal sort of uh uh, rock and yeah, roll. So, you know, year I mean,
1: we're in is 1973, right? And uh, this is the year the Black Sabbath had been around for a few years. Was sort of the proto-metal uh, and metal before uh, metal was a thing, right? Deep Purple is also mentioned in this. Um, 1973, uh, you know, they're they're promoting the album Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, right? And if you listen to this thing, you hear all the elements of things that will become heavy metal, but heavy metal is not a thing at this time, right? right. Um, so th- there's a lot of places to go for this, but. Uh, let me first address the, uh, the sort of the nostalgia for uh, uh, for this period of music and, uh, you know, why uh, it, it it seems to have this certain aura of authenticity that that is described. And then we can proceed to uh, dismantle that authenticity bit by bit. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we mentioned the, the quote unquote authorship earlier. Right. And that's something that uh, we talk a lot about on the movie side of overthinking it, but I think applies very much to the music world. As well, right, you have songwriters this this singer songwriter ideal, or the band uh, that writes their own songs and performs them and plays all of their own instruments right that is held up as some sort of ideal in music, right whether that is uh, appropriate or not right over over the years, I think probably uh originating with the Beatles, which you guys talked about recently um you know that has sort of set a standard right where a Self-contained unit has all the artistic ability to craft the songs and perform them at an extraordinarily high level, right? So there's that aspect of of, of what makes of what people really like about this period. And the other thing about it is the uh, that sort of the, the the peak achievement of guitar-driven rock, right? That's what you see here with Zeppelin, with Sabbath, with bands like that. Um, that uh, that achieved some real true artistry with um, with what they were doing and also had uh, virtuosic guitar solos, right? That, um, that uh, melted one's face. Is, is, uh, <laughs> that Dick Black, Black so graciously gave us that, that phrase. Um, and my personal relationship to this, and I know you guys talked about your personal relationship to music. So I feel pretty comfortable bringing this in is that as a young 15 year old learning to play the guitar, um, hearing Led Zeppelin for the first time was a true revelation um, you know like Saul on his way on, his, on the road to Damascus right like hit with a lightning bolt life is not the same after you hear this piece of music um, I had come from a classical music background. I dabbled a little bit in, pop, in, in, uh, in in listening to pop music a little bit, but it wasn't until I started to play the guitar through the gateway drug of the Beatles, actually, and then on to Skinner and Zeppelin and like learning the monster riff that just like tore through your eardrum. It, it was in that moment that I uh, came to understand music and like has formed my sense of what the power of music can be. Big Guitar music by uh, these, you know, auteurs with incredibly long hair and lots of facial hair and big guitar sounds. That's my long, rambling love letter to uh, this sort of classic rock and why, to me, it is the realest of real music.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the the, sort of the use of the electric guitar in the Beatles episode, we talked a little bit about the electric guitar as a technology, which, you know, allowed a couple of things. Um, One, it was mass producible so that people could, you know, go to the store and... um, uh, just buy one, you know, and it was within the reach of a middle class family to have to have one. So you could grow up, you know, playing one of these uh, yeah, cheap, sure, but still, you know, face melting uh, electric guitars. And if you got a big enough amp, you know, you could get your parents to yell at you t- yeah, to, to turn yeah. the thing down. Um, the other thing it allowed it. Uh, I mean, the other thing it it allowed them to do is to sort of play, I think, bigger and bigger uh bigger and bigger venues and to sort of overpower a like larger and larger crowd, uh, with that, with that sound. But it strikes me that like, whereas in the, um, the use of guitar, uh, the use of guitar in hard days, night and, um, and Pet Sounds uh, has like a sort of a strumming feel to it, and they're, so, they're sort of playing chords, right? Even that uh, even that sort of awesome chord that begins "Hard Day's Night," uh-huh. uh, that uh, uh, we talked to, we talked to about a couple weeks ago, is a um, it's a, a an actual you know pitch class set that you can describe in in diatonic music. I think it's like an, an uh, F9 over D, or something something like that.
1: There's some debate actually as to how to describe that chord. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex layered uh, <laughs> set of notes, but that's a whole other podcast. There are actually, like in Points, there's like some NPR podcasts about uh, that chord in particular, but this is not the Beatles podcast. D,
0: D, D minor 7 at 11, right? Like, I I don't know. You could say it a, a lot of ways. Um, I, and that's just what I read it was. I, I didn't actually try to pick out the pitches on. Uh, on the piano, which is my instrument and much less face, face shredding. But it's, it seems like this music moves from like strumming guitar to guitar riffs, right? To sort of guitar figures that are, that are melodic as well as, as well as rhythmic.
1: Yeah, right? exactly. And to which I will point to, um, one notable example, uh, the, the Led Zeppelin song Heartbreak. Are you familiar with this, map? Uh,
0: of course, I it, mean it's yeah, like the but...
1: fin- it's the pinnacle of, of riff rock, right? In terms of it, like, <laughs> <FO Familien> I'm sure like there are chordal parts of it, but like the main hook, the, the main what serves the main foundation of it is the sequence of notes uh, that proceed through in, in that way, right? And like so to, to be clear, also like the the, uh, the Beatles um, were there as well. Like if, if you remember the song Helter Skelter, right?
0: The Beatles the Beatles got there, you mean?
1: Yeah, they they, they have their one it's uh, they probably they might have another riff rock song that I'm not remembering, but Helter Skelter is certainly their most most notable one, right? Helter Skelter, ba da 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 Skelter, da 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 right?
0: Yeah. Sure. Um so that I mean that this is but it what it is is it's an interesting thing because it sort of concentrates on guitar virtuosity, right? And being able yes, to pick yes, out exactly. pick out those figures as opposed to just, you know, the guitar as kind of a as a kind of auto harp, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where you can uh, you know, as long as you can kind of make the chord shapes with your with your non dominant hand, you can uh you can sort of strum and make all the the guitar sound you need, like camp guitar, sing along guitar around the campfire, uh, you know. So, um, so this this uh, guitar this guitar player singer dynamic, um, charismatic singer, mysterious uh, guitar player is enabled partly, I think, because the mystery of the guitar player can be buttressed by. Um, Uh, through his technical accomplishments, right. By, by sort of pointing out that he can, um, you know, uh, he can do something that other people can't do. There's there's a virtuoso structure.
1: Yeah. You, you look at all the guitar heroes that came through, I'm not talking about the video game, uh, but the actual guitar heroes that came through the sixties, right. Eric Clapton. Jimmy Hendrix, uh, uh, Jimmy Page, and then uh, you know the fictional uh, musician Russell in there, right? Like there is this incredibly powerful mystique that comes from them. It's you know they, uh, you know Jimmy Hendrix evokes these ideas of being the voodoo child, for example, right? Like or, or they also evoke uh, the legends of Robert Johnson, the, the old Delta blues player from the twenties who sold his soul to the devil, right? It is as if they are imbued with a supernatural power, um, and they use this magic talisman, this a glorious phallic talisman that they uh, wand that they wave about the stage right and coax incredible incredible sounds from. sure all shall it's great yeah it's a supernatural wonderful thing
0: all sh- and the intellectual history of it is interesting and you know is is based in like the high romantic idea of an artist um, and, you know weave a circle round him thrice for he and close your eyes with holy dread for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of of paradise right uh, all shall cry beware Beware! Beware! His flashing eyes, his floating hair. Um, this is the the from uh, Kubla Khan.
1: Oh, I thought that was gonna be like Iron Maiden lyrics. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and Khan, what, uh, Eliot or? Uh,
0: No, Coleridge. Oh, sorry. Hundred years. Yeah, hundred years, yeah. <laughs> years before TSL yet, and it it has this I, this it has this idea of the artist at, actually as like a chemically altered figure, right? Because because uh, Coleridge was doing opium or I guess it would have been like laudanum or something uh and um you know the the idea of this sort of artist who is chemically altered and who is kind of communing with the spirits and who has access to uh, to a sort of deep um frightening but compelling uh, realm of powerful feeling and through his experience and his his suffering um, and his strong emotions, right, can show us a gateway uh, into that experience.
1: Into, into a, a, a realness, right? This, uh, this hyper-reality of the music can open us up to a true reality which we cannot see otherwise right, right. and if you remember what um what uh zoe deschanel exactly so it's the uh, the, with the message that she leaves for her her younger brother william uh it's the the album who right and she says listen to tommy with a candle burning and you will see your entire future
0: i was thinking of what she says before that as she's leaving while uh paul simon's america is playing um she says uh i left a I left something for you under under your bed. It will set you free and mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. idea I think of being set free uh is interesting here because it's set free from what well, from suburban conformity right from the sort of sameness of life as a as a white
1: teenager as a middle class white teenager from safety from 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 their mother's safety right from their mother's protection."
0: And also from her sort of very buttoned up kind of moral system, and it's it's unclear what she is. I think her, I think she's a little incoherent. If you want to like truly interrogate her, uh, what, what what exactly she's uptight about, you know? Because mm-hmm. she's she's a little bit uh, new agey, and yet she's awfully conservative. And uh, you know, I don't know. Um, she's and
1: also very intellectual and well read. It's this weird, very strange combination. Right, because,
0: yeah, but not not sort of bohemian, right? Yeah,
1: it does not belong to any conventional cultural space that, um, that we can place in in this period that that is often described in period pieces that deal with the seventies.
0: Yeah, sure. And I mean, I, I I think that's interesting and I think it's artistically strong because it's very, it's very specific and it's, it's sort of irreducible. It is the thing it is and can't be sort of, uh, it can't be sort of reduced to a type, but she is not a super representative. Uh, I mean, maybe she's based on Cameron Crowe's actual mom, you know, maybe, maybe she was, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this bundle of contradictions. Uh, Uh, Which is uh, great. I mean, people are like that.
1: Yeah, but hey, 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 Matt. I got. I just had an idea here. What is she for real? (laughs) What if she's the realness, right? And all the rock stuff. What if all that is fake, huh? Did you think about that? Yeah. Yes, yes, you did because the the movie clearly is part of the movie is clearly saying that, right?
0: Sort of that the, that the rock stuff is, is fake, but it's, it's a sort of, it's fake in the sense that it's sort of a shared, it's a shared hallucination, right? And yeah. we can sort of, and it's as good as being real if, if the, if the hallucination is shared. I mean, a, a lot of this stuff, it, this is about bands, you know what I mean? This isn't about, um, I you know, a solo act with a backing band, right? This is not James Brown, or it's not. I, I, I can't think of a, I can't think of a, um, an analog that's more in the style of, of this kind of music, but this isn't a, a, uh, a single performer with backup. This like communion and community is built into the DNA of this music. Right. And it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's music that sort of needs to be listened to sort of live in the context. And, and the idea of putting the headphones on is to be transported into the, the, into the music, into that sort of, Imagined, hallucinated communion Um with, yeah. with other people and
1: a, that, a, a land of hyper-reality of sorts
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's a And, and to, to sort of get access to that To, to something, and I, I mean I don't mean to sound too inflated about it, but it, it I think belongs to the same drive as sort of Trying to get through and to touch something Sort of ineffable or something Something human, something about human nature human experience, something that's Sort of cosmically true, that's sort of Cosmically for real uh, In addition to something that's kind of Day-to-day, um, day-to-day for real and and in fact right like one of the things i like about this movie is that it it elaborates it it sort of proposes and elaborates on its own discourse of for realness uh as it uh as it goes on um using philip seymour hoffman Mm
1: -hmm. Um, yeah yeah let's talk about him now
0: and this is, a, uh, this is a good opportunity to bring in this quote from, quote from Cameron Crowe, which I read on, on Wikipedia. It's a, uh, apparently a quotation from a blog entry that he wrote after Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Um, and he's talking about the, the sort of final scene as William is writing the, uh, the article, the final draft of the article at Rolling Stone's offices. And uh, he's, um, he calls Philip Seymour Hoffman for, for inspiration, and it's that uh, talk about being, being cool Um, And uh, Cameron Crowe writes, my original take on the scene was a loud late night pronouncement from Lester Banks, a call to arms Uh, in Phil's hands, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Phil's hands. It became a scene about quiet truths shared between two guys, both at the crossroads, both hurting and both up too late. It became the soul of the movie. Mm. Uh, And, and this idea, I mean, this idea of sort of communion and, and sort of sharing is uh, kind of baked into this, too, but what Philip Seymour Hoffman says is is that you know uh, other rock critics, the bad rock critics, um, want to buy uh, want to buy respectability, intellectual respectability, which is to say bourgeois respectability for uh, a, an art form that is, as he puts it, gloriously dumb. Right?
1: Um, yeah. He also says the day that it ceases to be dumb is the day that it ceases to be real.
0: Yeah. So, so, um, this is, I mean, this is sort of part of the, this is part of the, the discourse of for realness, right. That, that this film is proposing. And it actually is kind of against the discourse of for realness of the TFT podcast, right. Like being, you know, uh, Ryan and me anyway, being good right thinking post hipsters, um, (laughs) part of, part of a, uh, uh, part of for realness has to do with, um, I do, part of for realness has to do with sophistication, right? With kind of having been there and done that, and not repeating yourself, and not sentimentalizing uh, anything, really. A, sure, a kind of coolness that 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 uh, that can be aloof or that can be can yeah, seem sort it, of above it, it all. It's the Banks-
1: opposite. It is the opposite of Britney Spears singing "I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman." Yeah, okay. sure. No, whatever. That's not. That's that. That is for
0: real. But it it could be the same as me covering. I'm not a girl, not yet a woman, <laughs> in a solo piano rendition, uh, which oh I my am. God.
1: Which, I could not handle that realness.
0: Which I want to do in my uh, solo piano cabaret show uh, that I'm putting together with the the female singer songwriters of the early '90s. It's called Tales. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but Lester Bangs in, uh, in the film, the film's version of Lester Bangs talks about an industry of cool that's being, uh, that is not rock and roll, right? And, um, and, and rock and roll, real rock and roll is something else. It's something primal. It's something guttural. It's something deeply felt. Uh, it's something in, compelling experiences, it's something that two people share when, when they're not, uh, when they're not being cool. So it involves sort of, it involves sort of risk and self-disclosure and, you know, um, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of shedding of inhibitions, right?
1: Yeah. That's an interesting way of describing what rock and roll is like, so I'm, I'm with you in the shedding of inhibitions part, right? Like, those ecstatic moments of rock joy, you know, with the with the big guitar sounds and the big guitar solos and the crowd going wild, that sort of thing. Like, that's what I most associate with rock. But what you're talking about is this sort of risk-taking, the, the quieter side of it, of, like, the bearing of the soul and uh, the the establishment of a connection in these moments of, of true uncoolness. Like, that's... A, uh, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that a little bit there because, like, it's um it, what you're talking about is sort of a, a dropping of pretension right it's like no, and i am no longer putting up uh, putting on this show of my coolness right and and i am letting that guard down and that in fact is is a moment of of rock and roll that is of rock and roll is that what you're going is that where you are going with that well a
0: little bit i mean that's part of the i i think that that's part of the experience that lester bangs proposes and i think a lot of the pathos in the movie is um is created through irony, right? Where where people are pretending to be one thing, but they really are uncool, you know. <laughs> and yeah. and the music is the music is kind of access. Uh, the, the music is sort of access to that, right? It's it's something that that Sapphire says. One one of the things that w- the first time I saw this movie years and years and years ago, um, when it came out, uh, one of the things that stuck with me was what the uh, Band Aid Sapphire says about being a fan, um. When she's talking about the new girls, uh, you know, who are who are following the bands around and who are groupies, um, th- they uh, they don't use birth control <laughs> for one um, and they don't they don't like the music. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of Penny Lane's accomplishments or one of her uh one of the things that's called out about her in in the course of the film is that she knows all the words to the songs, especially the bad songs, yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, know, yeah. and oh. that like that sort of for an artist right like that that is that is powerful and it's important and it's really it's really sort of enabling and it's really uh you know wonderful to have that 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 kind of support for the band. I mean, mm-hmm. never mind. You're you're sexually exploiting her because you're screwing her on the road. You know, while your ex-wife is away. Uh, and by the way, is she even of age? But you know, um, but this is rock and roll, I suppose. And we don't have we don't have concerns like that. Um, what uh, what Sapphire says is uh, they don't know what it's like these new girls to care so much about. So one song or one one band right and and to care really sincerely to care is very uncool you know and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and a lot of the the pathos in the film as i say is is wrung out of people trying to pretend like they don't actually care uh about one another and um and and so this this uh this idea, I mean, though rock and roll is very cool, or or rather it's very compelling, it's very powerful, it's uh it's very attractive, right? There also seems to be baked into what this what this movie is telling us, what the movie's value system is, that there's that there is this um, there's this aspect of, of being uncool in being a fan or, or in being a real fan, uh, you know, and not being part of the industry of cool, uh, but being, being sort of gloriously dumb and saying, as, as Lester Bangs says about rock and roll, the message of rock and roll. Um, oh, no, sorry, this is not Lester Bangs. This is Jason Lee as the lead singer. He um, says, here I am and fuck you if you can't understand me. Uh, you know that, and that involves. I, I mean, that, in, that that is risk. That's that's self disclosure, and the fact that it it takes place in kind of a safe space of of awesome rock and roll fandom, um, I I think doesn't take away. You know, it doesn't take away uh, the aspect of the aspect of of sort of psychological risk and of sort of shedding shedding of inhibitions in order to say something true about yourself to yeah. a larger culture.
1: So, this line of conversation is making me think about the Tiny Dancer moment in the, in the movie. Yeah. Um, and, and let's see if, if, if you're there with me in that. And this idea of, like, this moment of uncoolness, this moment of shedding inhibition, and really connecting to a song, and, uh, and it's nonsensical words in a lot of ways, right? You know, and, it, and
0: a fucking Elton John song. I mean, come on, right? It's not, you know, I don't know. We're not, like, rocking all that hard here.
1: But yeah, so like they're not like um, uh, belting out Zeppelin songs, right? Or um, or they're not headbanging to Sabbath and air guitaring to its monster riffs, right?
0: No, it's a, it's a piano driven, right? It's the, the the sort of piano hook, right? The little da 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 it's not guitar driven, and it's not it's not you know super energetic. It's a it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit mellow.
1: Yeah, and and the words are just only make enough sense. Also, right? Um, you know, like Jesus freaks out in the streets, uh, handing tickets out for God. All this stuff is like googly gawk, but but then it just like comes together in this glorious moment where everybody can seems to relate to it. Right? Hold me closer, tiny dancer. Count the headlights on the highway, and you just sort of like understand that just enough or it's just like it makes you feel good and, and like it, it gives you this uh, feeling of like what it means just to hold someone close in in, in those moments right
0: yeah um and and the idea to hold someone close, hold me closer, tiny dancer. Uh, but that like everyone is, everyone is singing together, right? Like the important thing about the meaning of the lyrics is that we all know them and we can all sing them.
1: Uh, but yeah. I mean, you know, that's the, the lyric and song actually, like the, the word she knows, the tune she holds. Yeah. Right. It's, it might be a little bit of a throwaway thing that might be just attaching some significance where none exists, but like that, uh, it, it certainly resonates for me when thinking about that scene and what a great scene, what just a, it's just such a classic scene. Yeah,
0: it's a good movie. I mean, it's a good movie, and it's very. It manages to be very moving in places without being super maudlin, right? Like it really yeah. sort of really sort of earns the emotional payoff rather than, uh, you know, I don't know, rather than doing it in a in a cheap or sentimental.
1: Um, yeah, um, yeah, and I want to bring up another. Um uh use of El of the of Elton John in this movie, which is uh, is uh, a, a moment that is you know is is touching that or it earns it without being maudlin, right? It's um uh after Penny Lane uh leaves the party and is on her way to the plaza and William is looking for her, you hear the song Mona Lisa's and Man Hatters. Um, are you familiar with this song, Matt?
0: Well, yeah, I, yes, I am, but I couldn't say anything interesting right.
1: so about Mona it. Lisa's and Mad Hatter's, sons of bankers, sons of lawyers, go, like, turn around and say good morning. to It's, you know, this song is, uh, now I know, uh, uh, something, something, New York City, right? It, it's like just a beautiful piano ballad, and it has a sense of longing and uh, and, and melancholy, and it evokes New York City. I was just wear that scene obviously takes place right like i have a i have ascribed meaning and significance and, and realness for lack of a better word to that song because it is um i probably saw almost famous in 2004 um before i graduated from college um and found myself at, in the summer after college in south korea very far away from home far away from uh the uh, New York City, which is sort of just you know, in, in a from a cultural perspective, like a convenient stand-in for home for the United States, uh, you know, the closest metro area from where we were in school in Connecticut. Um, and uh, that song, the the lines about New York City and the thanking the Lord for the people that I have found, um, for some reason, I just like really attached uh, a, a lot of emotional heft into that song. It's really stuck with me ever since. Um and I don't know if I, have, if I have a profound point about this here, but like um if the feeling that I get from that song is real, right, then it, it is that that is the realest thing you could possibly have. For me, it doesn't matter sort of like, you know, how that song was produced, if you know it doesn't matter that Elton John you know played played and sung, but Bernie Toppin wrote the lyrics and I'm sure they had a, a producer involved as well too. None of that sort of matters. All that matters is the intimate uh, uh, uh moment uh, when I connect with the song emotionally, and it, it, it is that a form of realness, Matt? Is yeah. that for
0: oh, no, no? I mean, I, I think so. This is something, I mean, there are a lot of directions that I want to go from here. One is that we, I mean, we've talked on this podcast in this sort of stretch, uh, in the current season of the TFT podcast about music as an artifact, as a recording, uh, versus music as an event and the recording as a record of an event. Um, mm. Right. Uh, and when you, uh, encounter the artifact, uh, of music, when you listen to it, that is also an event. Right. And that, that experience has, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of sort of deeply personal meanings. Uh, the, the film, I think, is proposing that the, that the most important, uh, the most important meanings, um, of music are are the collective ones. But but it, there also is a sense in which, like, all the teenagers uh, sitting in in their rooms with their headphones on listening to record players uh, are tapping into something larger, uh, some kind of, you know, collective human experience. And, and that that, through that individual experience, you sort of get into the, through the specificity of individual experience, you get into the, the common shared experience. But another way of looking at it is something that we say, a, uh, and it's a uh, it's an expression of Fenzel's, um, like a lot of things on overthinking. <laughs> it are
1: in a way, uh, isn't all of overthinking <laughs> an expression of Fenzel's?
0: Uh, his mentality, yes, certainly. Um, the uh, the uh, the saying is that, that Dan Harmon is in the ravioli. And yeah. and what what we, we use it to mean that we have to talk about Dan Harmon when we're doing community episode recaps. But what it also means is that you can't neatly separate out and sort of piece out uh, piece by piece your experiences of different things. Because to you, life is one undifferentiated experience. And it's not like your experience of a bad day is distinct from your experience of watching an episode of television on that bad day or in in the uh the case that occasioned the um uh the saying your uh experience of learning that Dan Harmon got fired from community after season 3 uh It can't be separate from your experience Of making ravioli for dinner And the ravioli tastes bad Because Dan Harmon is in uh, Is in the (laughs) ravioli You know And that you can't uh, You can't separate out The pieces of your experience And I think I think that that's definitely True of music Largely because uh, We can listen to music While we're doing something else (laughs) Precise (laughs) You know Right like And so it can attach um, It can attach itself To sort of landscapes Or to experiences or to sort of feelings uh, that you have, um, uh, the you know, honestly, in in drama school, like a lot of actors I know, and a lot of professional actors I know, will listen to certain music to put themselves in a mood. Um, that's a controversial technique because you know there are those who would say that, like whatever, uh, you you have to create it all imaginatively by yourself, and you can't use this this crutch of of <laughs> you know, of music, but I say, fuck that. Whatever gets you there is what gets you there. And um, I mean,
1: it's, it's controversial in, uh, in, in the athletic world as well, too, right, uh, where I think at certain uh, races, like foot races, running races, uh, the, the use of headphones and iPods is, is banned. Because like listening to Iron the Tiger while you're jogging is some sort of unfair advantage, or it's like strips away, takes away from the purity of just you know the the human body and uh, it left to its own devices. But
0: the the controversy that that attends uh, th- these things is a testament to how how powerful music music is. Um, how its power to latch on to to experiences in your life and to sort of to to, summon to be
1: up inseparable from those experiences
0: yeah yeah exactly just yeah. to, to sort of summon so, up remembrance of things past like or like uh yeah exactly like proust biting into the madeleine. you know i i guess i guess the the scientists say that um uh the sense of smell is yet more powerful is in fact the most powerful uh sense that smells can bring you back to 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 certain times and and certain things but um uh but but music seems to have meaning meaning attached and it's the kind of intermingling of of meanings with the the sort of meanings and thoughts of your own life that that give it its like incredible sticky power
1: yeah i hadn't really thought about in those terms but it makes a ton of sense but i want to try to Uh, argue from a different perspective, or have us consider a different perspective on this, which is that, like, is there some sort of, like, uh, idea of, uh, you, you say that there's not this idea of just a, a, a recording that exists totally on its own without any context, right? You always have to bring in the, the context of the listener into it, right? The Dan Harmon being in the ravioli piece of it. Um, but like, you know, to what extent can we go to the other end of that spectrum and say like, you know, there's this piece of music that I listen to without any particular context with a, um, you know, in a pretty neutral emotional state. Right? Does, does such a thing exist? Is it valuable to think about music in that way? Let's just say, for example, like um, it's a lazy weekend day. I had an average week. I'm not particularly perturbed by anything at, at this given moment. You know, there are no major anxieties, and all the minor anxieties are safely tucked away if such a thing exists. And I'm sitting in my computer, and I haven't looked at anything, and I just like put on uh, A Tiny Dancer by Elton John right? Like, like that sort of hypothetical state of mind, does that even exist? And if it does, like, is it even useful to think about like, what is the effect of music? If you're in that, um, sort of, uh, palette cleanse state of mind. So
0: let me, let me, um, yeah. Oh, well, I think, I think it's really interesting. I mean, let me propose actually a way because putting on tiny dancer implies some intentionality and that intention comes from somewhere and you want, you want this thought experiment to be, you okay, know,
1: a, okay. Tiny dancer I, comes on the radio yeah,
0: or, or, or like, I hit shuffle, right? I hit shuffle on the iPod and, or who has an iPod anymore. I hit shuffle on the, on the iTunes. Music
1: the app of your, yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. On, Spotify, right? And Tiny Dancer is the first thing that happens to... uh, that happens to come on, yeah. But don't don't you think in that hypothetical experience, if you sort of put yourself in that headspace, don't you think your affect would change uh, almost instantaneously? Uh, either like, oh, I love this song, or oh, I don't want to listen to this now. This'll this'll make me mopey, or this'll make me nostalgic, or this'll make me something you know something do and, and I'm thinking of that song in particular as being kind of wistful and and uh, you know mellow. Um, Right, this is not, this is not, like, don't you think you'd have a, you, you would assume you'd hear the song, have a, associations with the song and about what experience the song is going to give you, uh, and then have a, have a reaction about whether or not you want that experience or not?
1: I, yeah, I think you're right. So in other words, like that hypothetical mind space that I just described, it might exist, but it exists for like a fraction of a second. Right.
0: The se- the, when a song comes on, suddenly you're you're put in a uh, a position of kind of stepping into, you know, I don't know, stepping into an affective world, or else, you know, I don't know, hitting hitting skip, right, hitting thumbs down on Pandora. Uh, At
1: which point, then, like the next song you listen to is affected by the, the tiny amounts of music that you just listened to, and then it's a certain effect on your emotional state.
0: Yeah sure uh right and and these are not i mean these these don't have to be like you know uh Tears, as though your dog just got run over, or something like that. Apologies to anyone whose dog just got run over, but uh, I, I you know, some sort of wrenching, uh, personal tragedy. They, these are kind of micro; they sort of are. They register in, on the micro scale, on the like the emotional meter, but they they register right, and and maybe more mood, uh, right than than emotion. Maybe more sort of tone, uh, right the kind of de- the kind of day. Uh, the kind of day you want to have on your on your lazy lazy weekend morning late, mm-hmm. late morning after brunch
1: yeah so matt um I we've covered like uh, you know all the sort of major categories of music that 's represented in this music right in terms of the rock and then the Elton John songs that are much more mellow. You know what we haven 't talked about yet what 's that the chipmunk Christmas song that starts the movie what in the world is that thing doing? Well,
0: I, I think that that's what, so, so one thing that, that, you know, that stories do is they establish a, a world with stasis, right? They establish a world that is nothing much is, is happening. It is the way it is. And then something kind of cuts into that world, uh, and disrupts the stasis. And, and in this, it's the, the departure of the older sister and the, um, the thing that, that gives her, uh, it's the departure the departure of the sister and and getting the records um that sort of disrupts this and puts patrick on on his path to you know like the rock and roll meet lester bangs uh, and get hired to write for cream magazine um so i i think that the 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 chipmunks christmas song is um i, I think it's meant to to represent that world the the sort of world before rock and roll or at least the sort of childhood world there,
1: yeah 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 yeah. it's a childhood it's not necessarily like about uh the mom although like you know it is in that period where the no, mom had a dominant influence
0: it's interesting what yeah it i guess it has to do it has to do with with childhood i mean i you know i don't know it was for me a big it, big disjunction between and and uh you know uh my mom who i was living with day de- it was not a huge music fan and wouldn't like put music on a lot in the house. Um, the, uh, but uh, I I remember moving from like what my parents liked or suggested as music to like developing my my own taste and and be you know buying my own records and liking what I liked and listening to it sort of by myself in my room right like that was a big that was a big sort of inflection point with growing up for me I don't know if something something similar happened to you but I I mean I think the Chipmunks represents the world and the stasis of the world that's going to get. That's going to get disrupted uh, and set in motion, the the events of the
1: film. Sure. Yeah. And and that record for you, by the way, was uh, like many people of my age. Just guess what it was, Matt.
0: You uh, was it Guns N' Roses?
1: No, that's a good guess, though.
0: No, that's probably Uh, too. That's probably too early, I guess. Maybe like 10 or um, or Nirvana.
1: It was either Pearl Jam 10, right, the one with Don't Call Me Daughter on yeah. it, or, or Nirvana. Never mind, exactly.
0: No, I, yeah. I think Versus has Don't Call Me Daughter.
1: Okay, so that one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it c- clearly has made an imprint on me. But interestingly enough, back to what I was talking about earlier, right, like that music so, more or less sort of came and went, right? It was like when I started to play an instrument myself that I really uh, developed the strongest emotional connection to the type of classic rock that um, we've been talking about. All in this episode, right? Because right?
0: it wasn't, it wasn't, and I mean that's that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk about this with you, right? You didn't get, um, uh, you didn't get. Though you may have been into these bands, I don't know, but you didn't get crazy about like Soundgarden or something like that, right? Like
1: uh, not crazy about like. Sure, I was into it. You know, I was. Um, I, I, I am one of many spoon men. <laughs> in, in the world,
0: hey, any song, any rock and roll song that's in seven, right? Like it's yeah. <laughs> uh, you know
1: is worth listening to. Yeah. Did you ever you guys ever put together that playlist of seven eight jams?
0: There were a couple of comments on one of the episodes for uh, for the uh, for the seven eight jams, um, but we still have to uh, uh, we still got to put that together. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, but, you know, like, along along the spirit the spirit, and like I think it's incumbent upon myself if i if I am demanding of you a, a Spotify playlist of seven eight jams. It is, I have to rise to this occasion as well and put together a Spotify playlist of, like, Mark Lee at 15 years old learning to play the guitar and being blown away by Monster Riffs.
0: So we, um, we've, had, uh, we've had some requests, and, and Ryan and I have talked privately a little bit, about the idea of becoming—I um, I don't, I don't quite know exactly how this would work—but uh, becoming a, a label— somehow t- <laughs> t- you know tft tft records right we, uh it's uh a, a- B- M, always be monetizing uh and um wh- you know aside from from finding uh, authentic indie pop acts that are for real and uh, releasing their music out to the world uh through the platform of the tft podcast and overthinking com, we uh we have thought uh that also perhaps a record of covers uh would be, uh, would be in order. And uh, I just, I just want to see if, Mark, if you, you're signed up for the, uh, the TFT Records covers project in whatever form it, it uh, ends up taking.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the world really needs like a, a psychedelic rock version of the, Chris, uh, the Chipmunk Christmas song <laughs> with like a 20-minute long guitar solo.
0: <laughs> well, you sort of started it. I mean, you, you, you gave it its sort of spiritual inception with your covers of, of Justin Bieber. On overthinking.
1: Oh yeah! It. Oh man! Yeah. That, and if you want to find I promise those... to continue that series, but I uh, haven't really quite delivered on that one. If yet. you want to
0: find, if you want to find those, you can Google the Baby Project uh, uh, for on overthinking it. And, yeah, we and should include this show notes yeah. as well. Um, so, well, uh, I think we're going to wrap, Mark. It, it has been a pleasure for for talking to you. Thank you very much for joining the TFT podcast and uh, swearing, swearing, been... and spoiling the movies
1: yeah. and stuff. This has been quite the real experience. One more can I
0: say? (laughs) Um, We're going to be back next week. We don't know quite yet what the research agenda is going to be, uh, but it's been real. And um, we will uh, see you next time.